0: listening to a reading of the book Disrupting Mercy by Matthew C. Clarke and Annabella Rossini Clark. The book was published in 2022 and this reading is being distributed as a series of podcasts narrated by the author Matthew Clark. Footnotes and bracketed references to verses in the Bible have mostly been omitted to make the reading flow more conversational. I assume if you want to study the fine details you'll read either the printed or the e-book versions which are available from many online booksellers including Amazon. Biblical quotes are nearly all taken from the New Revised Standard Version. Chapter 6. Mercy and Brokenness. An initial thought to ponder. Please listen to Peter Mayer's song, Japanese Bowls. There are several versions on YouTube. I've always found this an incredibly moving, even eye-watering song. How do you feel about your own cracks? Many readers will be familiar with Les Miserables, a massive 1,400-page novel by Victor Hugo that has since been dramatised in radio plays, TV series, more than a dozen movies, and of course the incredible stage adaptation with music by Claude-Michel Schomburg. Perhaps the key to this story's ongoing popularity is the way it juxtaposes law and mercy. In this chapter, I use Hugo's portrait of Jean Valjean to help us reflect on the nature of human brokenness. One of the outcomes of an astute perception of mercy is the recognition that we are all broken – so that none can authentically stand above the rest of humanity judging or rescuing from a position of superiority. The central storyline of Les Miserables follows Jean Valjean after his release from 19 years in prison. Originally sentenced to five years for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his sister and her starving children, the sentence was extended after he tried to escape. Escape and recapture repeat three more times, And by the time he was released he was a broken and angry man. Through suffering upon suffering he came little by little to the conviction that life was a war, and that in that war he was the vanquished. At times he did not even know exactly what he felt. Jean Valjean was in the dark, suffering in the dark, hating in the dark. He lived constantly in darkness, groping blindly like a dreamer. End of quote. Another character is Javert, an incorruptible police officer who is as harsh on himself as he is on criminals. Javert believes Jean Valjean will always remain a morally despicable criminal. After his release from prison, when Valjean skips his parole regulations, Javert hunts him relentlessly for 20 years. I will discuss the character of Javert and his opposition to mercy later, but for now, consider the act of mercy that transforms Jean Valjean's life soon after his release from prison. As Valjean wanders around France, his yellow passport informs everyone that he is a criminal, not to be trusted. In the town of Digny, no one will even give him food or lodging, even though he has money to pay for them. With night falling, he even seeks shelter in a small hut, only to discover that it's actually a kennel and a bulldog chases him out. Late in the cold evening, he knocks on yet another door and receives a surprisingly warm welcome by the local bishop, Monsignor Charles-Francois Binavenu miriel The bishop gives him a meal and a bed, refusing to accept any payment. At 2am, Valjean wakes in his bed and, forever angry at his past ill treatment, he decides to steal the bishop's silver tableware and abscond. He's captured by local police later that morning and dragged back to the bishop's house. Now an amazing thing happens. Quote, the bishop approached as quickly as his great age permitted. Ah, there you are, he said, looking at Jean Valjean. I'm glad to see you, but I gave you the candlesticks too, which are silver like the rest and would bring 200 francs. Why didn't you take them along with your cutlery? Jean Valjean opened his eyes and looked at the bishop with an expression no human tongue could describe. Then, turning to the gendarmes, he said, "Messieurs, you may go», and the gendarmes left. Jean Valjean felt like a man about to faint. The bishop approached him and said in a low voice, «Do not forget, ever, that you have promised to me to use this silver to become an honest man». Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of any such promise, stood dumbfounded. The bishop had stressed these words as he spoke them. He continued solemnly, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. End of quote. Giving Valjean a meal and a bed is an act of kindness, but the bishop's response to the theft is something more than kindness. The extraordinary generosity and implied forgiveness is an act of mercy which springs from the bishop's compassion. Rather than being blinded by what others think Valjean deserves, he calls on Valjean to become a better person. Valjean is not immediately changed, but enters a period of confusion, resistance, tears and reconsideration. He senses a new light shining on him, a light that both exposes the horror of who he has become and gently illuminates a fragile hope. The rest of the book shows how deeply Valjean is transformed by Bishop Muriel's mercy. For the remainder of his life, Valjean demonstrates the same mercy to others in acts of self-sacrifice, generosity, forgiveness and love. Note, however, that this hoped-for outcome was not a determinant of the bishop's mercy, If Valjean had remained selfish, deceitful and angry, it would not have changed the bishop's choice. One last point about Bishop Muriel before moving on. In the musical version of Les Miserables, Bishop Muriel's character is very shallow, with this scene being his only brief appearance. In the book, however, the bishop is the main focus of the first hundred pages. It is Hugo's portrait of a man whose whole life reflects the self-giving generosity of mercy. Bishop Muriel illustrates for us a key feature of mercy. Mercy is demonstrated not in single acts of heroism, but through a character developed over a lifetime, out of which acts of mercy, large and small, spring naturally and frequently. Subheading, our own encounters with mercy. Victor Hugo's portrayal of Jean Valjean shows how mercy can drastically redirect the trajectory of a person's life. Well, John is not, however, as extreme a case as it might first appear. As Peter Mayer's song Japanese Bowls reminds us, we are all broken. The most important question is not how to avoid being broken, but what to do with our inevitable brokenness. Like everyone else since Adam and Eve, Annabella and I have been damaged by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, by things we have done and by things done to us. We've been richly blessed as well as deeply hurt and in the midst of all that we've experienced the gift of mercy and sought to show mercy to those around us. I've been privileged to have friends, family, work colleagues and a profusion of life experiences that have been positive and nourishing. I've had money, education and career opportunities far beyond what most of the world experiences. Certainly there have been challenges, but I'm alert enough about my history to know that whatever I say about mercy is biased by my unearned privilege. That is not to suggest all privilege is unearned, but that so much good just came to me. All of it is a gift, a kindness, independent of what I might or might not deserve. Such a life inevitably raises the question of why I am the recipient of such mercy when so many others are not. At times I have extended mercy to others, and at times I have not. After an idyllic childhood on a dairy farm in the lush coastal town of Berry, my high school experience was the most destructive period of my life. I suffered through the ages of 11 to 17 at an all-male boarding school on the southwest outskirts of Sydney, a school that seemed to me devoid of love, in stark contrast to the family environment I had known up to that point. The school culture was marked by bullying, the derision of anyone who was different, and the hierarchical bastardization or hazing that is common in many male institutions. With a youthful and idealistic sense of fairness, I actively opposed that culture, often refusing to give in to it as a junior, standing up for the underdog, and as a senior student calling on others to break the cycle of abuse. The whole experience was traumatic for me. And many, many nights I cried myself to sleep. On the other hand, I was not blameless, and my own struggles to manage adolescent sexuality were unhealthy and harmful. During that troublesome time, great mercy was extended to me by some of the school teachers. One teacher in particular must have seen how much I was struggling. He arranged activities that helped me to release the tension and get through the final high school exam period, Against the normal school procedures, he hosted evenings of card games for a few students. He would physically wrestle with me, normally letting me think I was winning. He took a few students off campus on abseiling and caving trips. He did not confront any of the challenges I faced or mistakes I was making, but simply gave me his time and his emotional support. At a time when my parents were not there, and the school's institutional structures offered no help, He kindly gave me the steadying hand I needed. Other people have also helped me in hard times. I cannot imagine how I could have survived otherwise. How can anyone or any society survive without the safety net of mercy? After school and university I worked in Sydney and lived in an intentional Christian community linked to the Uniting Church. That house had many visitors including Malcolm a young man with severely antisocial psychological problems. He could not hold down a job, was often homeless, sometimes violent, drunk or high. We naively tried to help him, though he drove us crazy. During almost every visit, he would abuse us for not giving him what he wanted, because that, he assured us, was what real Christians would do. One day Malcolm stole some money from a jar in our kitchen that held cash for groceries. One of us saw him do it through the window. After we confronted him about the money and wrestled with him to get it back, he left saying, You'll be sorry. I'm going to send the boys around to deal with you. Although he was capable of violence, we were not particularly worried by his threat until there was a knock on the door a few hours later and we could see two large shapes through the frosted glass of the front door. When we opened the door, the shapes turned out to be two police officers following up a report of someone being attacked in our house Malcolm had sent the boys around, just not the boys that we expected. The police were easily assured that there was no problem and went away without even coming inside, leaving me wondering what would have happened if we really had been assaulting someone in the back room. We would often get late night emergency phone calls from Malcolm, calls that lasted hours. Though it appears heartless looking back now, we would sometimes just leave the phone with him talking and go back to bed. He could talk for an hour before realising no one was listening. Once we had to take him to hospital to get his stomach drained of whatever cocktail he had taken. On another call he told me in a panic that his girlfriend had just slit her throat and I drove 20 minutes to his home to help. They were both stressed and hyperactive that the girl's injuries turned out to be minor. There was little I could do except try to calm them down. In another situation two of us spent a night sitting with a young woman who was trying to escape a drug addiction called Turkey. A couple of years later, a young man moved in with us after being released from prison. He too struggled to escape a drug addiction and tragically died of an overdose while living with us. Around that time, I changed my paid work from five to four days a week so that I could spend one night a week hanging out with homeless youth. I recount those interactions to suggest that, however naïve we were as twenty-somethings, we deliberately positioned ourselves to be able to engage with Malcolm and others so that we could act with mercy towards them. We did not name it mercy then, and we had little idea about how to really help, but we were learning. In my late twenties I saw the movie Cry Freedom about the death of anti-apartheid activist Steve Biko. And through the organization African Enterprise, I started to learn more about the complexities of racial injustice in South Africa. I spent a month or so in South Africa at the beginning of nineteen ninety, to see some of that first hand, and to weigh up whether I could do anything to support the processes of peace and justice there. During that trip I spent a weekend in Soweto, much to the horror of many white people I informed. You can't go there, they would say. You'll be killed for sure. Instead, I found warm hospitality. A year later, I sold all I had in Australia, even cashed in my superannuation, and emigrated to South Africa. I lived in an inner-city area and volunteered in African enterprises' cross-cultural bridge-building programs. My main intention in that context of extreme separation and fear was not to take sides or project a foreigner's judgment, but to show by example that cross-cultural collaboration and friendships were possible. Once again, I'm recounting this to show my early and sustained willingness to act out of compassion. There's not much to boast about. None of it was driven by any sense of sacrifice, nor judgment. And in a sense of what was right, good and kind impelled me, but I could rarely tell if my presence made any positive difference or not. My motives were, no doubt, muddied by arrogance, but the posture of acting for others of pursuing an ideal that encompassed both justice and mercy has been with me for a long time, and I'm still learning. My wife Annabella was raised by stricter parents than mine. According to the theology of her parents, children were born sinful and manipulative. Good parenting required those errant urges to be dislodged, using the fear of physical punishment to counter disobedience. Annabella cannot recall her parents ever singing her to sleep, Or reading a bedtime story. That's not the full story, of course. They were loving and kind in their own ways, and following parenting norms of the day. In fact, in a way that seems paradoxical now, it was their love that motivated their harshness. Annabella recounts two childhood incidents that show her hunger for mercy and the results of her own lack of mercy. On one occasion, when she was about 11 years old, Annabella was left at home with her sister, who was about three, while the rest of her family were at church for a couple of hours. During that time, Annabella told her sister that their parents had died in a car crash and were not coming home. Her sister climbed into her lap and cried, while Annabella assured her she would look after her. The sister was deeply upset, and soon afterwards Annabella told her it was not true and that the parents would be home soon. One important aspect of that story is to try to understand why Annabella acted as she did. To a large extent, she was yearning for comfort herself. She wanted someone to need her, someone who would sit in her lap and be comforted. She needed someone to hug, and who would hug her. Another aspect is the long-term effect on Annabella's sister, who later in life recognised a fear of her parents dying. Although she had no conscious memory of the incident with Annabella, did it contribute to that fear? Annabella had never spoken to anyone about her deceit until that time. In her late 30s, Annabella recognised her own shadow side in that childhood event, how her own need for relational warmth and affirmation led her to exploit her sister's emotions. She described this childhood incident to her sister and apologised for it, and her sister offered forgiveness. That forgiving interchange as adults was an important relational step for both of them. In Annabella's childhood, another experience highlights the confusion about love and mercy in her mother's approach to parenting. At age 13, Annabella was very excited about being allowed to attend a church youth group. However, two days before the event, she made some mistake that resulted in her being grounded. Her mother would not allow her to attend the youth group. Annabella thought that surely, if she were a model daughter, her mother would relent, have mercy, and allow her to go. For the next two days she did everything right and offered to do extra chores. But no, it did not matter how repentant Annabella was, a decision had been made. From her mother's point of view, any leniency would undermine her authority and encourage Annabella's waywardness. Since no backing down was possible, the punishment had to be carried out. Annabella was deeply hurt as her brother's car drove off to the youth group without her, confused and angry that her best efforts could not change her mother's decision. The longer-term impact was that Annabella gave up trying to please her mother and learned how to dance around her instead. It did not instill the respect her mother intended, nor did it deter manipulation but encourage the reverse. The despondency that arose because there was no hope of receiving mercy led to Annabella following rules dutifully and fearfully, But lying to avoid punishment. She found other ways to meet her needs for affection and kindness rather than expecting them from her mother. Both incidents highlight the importance of mercy in our family relationships. Mercy is like the springs of a trampoline that allow the structure to flex and bounce back rather than break. We also need to be retrospectively merciful to our younger selves because most of us have done things we regret. And have wounded others who are dear to us. What is clear from both Annabella's and my experiences is that without mercy we are all stuck up the tree like Zacchaeus, alone, ashamed and hopeless. Acknowledging our own shadows, we have learned that we and everyone need mercy. Without mercy we are lost. But if we allow the gold of mercy to be poured into our cracks, we can embrace our brokenness And become items of great beauty. Subheading, three macro stories. Brokenness is a universal part of human experience, though we are each broken in unique ways. A distinctive mark of Jesus' ministry was the way he valued people's brokenness and drew them beyond its effects into a higher purpose. He knew brokenness did not erase the image of God in us and is never the end of our story. The Bible is full of stories, an observation that has fuelled countless theological treatises on narrative style, plot, scene, symbolism, journey and character development, but underlying all the varied plots, authorship and styles are some recurring themes. These are important meta-narratives that provide structure to the many individual stories. Marcus Borg calls them macro-stories and suggests that three macro-stories are particularly important understanding how God interacts with us. These macro stories reflect three forms of brokenness in our human condition, along with God's response to them. The first macro story is the biblical depiction of the problem of sin, a problem whose resolution is found in forgiveness. The second is the problem of bondage, whose resolution is found in freedom. The third is the problem of exile, Whose resolution is found in the journey home. These three macro stories provide a helpful way to frame the role of mercy in God's mission. These three categories of brokenness are so fundamental to the human condition and such strong themes in the Bible that I allocate the next three chapters to discuss each one in turn. My intention is to show how mercy acts in contexts of sin, bondage and exile to bring about forgiveness, freedom and the journey home. I'm not suggesting that every story of mercy fits neatly into one of these categories. Often a person's story will involve multiple forms of brokenness, so choosing in which category to place them can be somewhat arbitrary. At our wedding, Annabella and I placed candles and our rings on a broken plate. Although it was badly cracked, the plate had been repaired with gold. Well, fake gold anyway. In the Japanese style called kintsugi. For us, the cracks represented the brokenness of our individual histories, our mistakes and failures, our past relationships, the disappointments that come from within, and the damage we have suffered from without. In our marriage, we did not intend to deny or whitewash those past cracks, but to explicitly honour them because they constituted and continue to constitute essential parts of who we are. Kintsugi recognises that nothing lasts, nothing is finished and nothing is perfect. Rather than throw away something that's broken, Kintsugi repairs it in a way that highlights the imperfections. In the same way we hope that our marriage will honour our individual pasts and that we may pour gold into each other's cracks. Mercy is like that. Mercy does not deny our need or our guilt, but neither does it discard people because they are broken. We all need Kintsugi of the soul. Mercy is God's gold, painstakingly and expertly brushed into our cracks to make us more beautiful. Mercy gives broken people new life, infused with glory subheading, something to consider? How do you normally respond to brokenness in yourself and in others? How would those responses change if they were infused with mercy? chapter of Disrupting Mercy has been narrated by Matthew C. Clarke. Other chapters are also available from the usual podcast distributors. You can also find them along with more details about the authors at turningteardropsintojoy.com. If you'd like to join a discussion about the book and share your own experiences of mercy, search for the Disrupting Mercy group on Facebook.